0: You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hello, this is Dr. Penny Chris Hetherton, president of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association.
1: Our topic today on Lipid Luminations is Evidence-Based Medicine, and our guest is Dr. Robert Wilde, Professor of Reproductive Endocrinology, Obstetrics and Gynecology, Medicine and Biostatistics, and Epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Wilde is also the Chief of Gynecology Service at the VA Medical Center in Oklahoma City. So, Bob, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion of evidence-based medicine. It's my pleasure you know, you're a colorful character. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of interesting information from you And what other people might think, oh my God, another talk on evidence-based medicine. It started to of become a cliche. And I remember growing up in the field of lipids that before a drug had a study, they'd say, okay, we lowered LDL cholesterol, so we're going to reduce events. And then their competitors who had a clinical trial would say, oh, we've got to go buy evidence-based medicine. And with each new iteration of a new product, Everybody kind of grabbed that term and said, well, we've got evidence-based medicine and you don't. So it's one of those things that most physicians have heard about at uh, pharmaceutical dinners, but they probably don't have a great concept of what do we really mean. So why don't you take a few minutes, explain to our audience, what exactly is evidence-based medicine to the science? Well, I mean, I
0: agree that the phrases are used and overused. What it really boils down to is trying to seek out the best evidence available and inform better clinical decisions. It needs to be integrated with patient values, your own experience. But seeking and learning the tools to find the best evidence is a very worthy goal. And once those tools are learned, the concept is really to develop your own path to be able to evaluate evidence, to find out if it's, in your opinion, actionable. That's really what it's about. It's a broad spectrum. I think many people have looked on Evidence-based practices, maybe just clinical trials. Reality is, is, in our view, every study design, each one has its own specific place, has strengths and weaknesses, and knowing and understanding those and understanding the hierarchy of evidence is truly a way to become informed, improve your own clinical decisions, and then translate it into better patient care. What it really relates to, and should, I think, is... Informing our decisions about diagnosis, treatment, therapy... But there's a whole host of things we do that have the need to be able to draw on that information, but they're no
1: substitute for the kind of skills we've been honed and learned to do through the years. So, you know, you're one of the great gurus of this whole concept of evidence-based medicine. I know that you're providing a course for the National Lipid Association. We're going to get to the details of that course later. But, you know, first of all, I want you to talk to us a little bit about what are the components of something in order to make it useful clinically to say this is really evidence-based data And then after you tell us a little bit about what the components are, can you give us your insights on whether you think guideline development actually uses this information appropriately, where we could either be better or are are we doing very well in terms of clinical guidelines?
0: Well, components. There's all kinds of components. We're limited in terms of the time we have, but I think it's important to understand there's a hierarchy of evidence. In our view, the bottom of the list is expert opinion. And if you go up that hierarchy, a case report, you know, people have to sit down and really publish it and go through the details. That can be very insightful. We all know there's some important clinical examples. You know, we knew about observing what happened, and that led to our understanding for one or two patients and then a series of HIV. We tracked it all down that way. That's a good thing. The problem is is observational studies can do more than that. And when we think about observational studies, a good thing to think about is, where's the control group? Sort of like Groucho Marx said, compared to what? (laughs) That was the whole line he used to use. So analytic studies then mean there's a control group. And if we begin to understand the hierarchy of those studies, I think that's useful when we assess them. Because all information is incomplete, all information is going to change over time, but that doesn't excuse our need to try to find the best evidence that we can marshal for a given clinical choice. So, again, analytic studies mean a control group, and there's a hierarchy of those. If we think about cross-sectional studies as a snapshot in time, they're really good for burden of disease, and they're good for setting up ideas and thoughts, but they don't help us with causality. Up the ladder, a case-control study, what we do is we sample on the outcome and then look for the risk factor. And there are strengths and weaknesses. The best design for rare disorders is a case control. And some of the only things we can answer are through that kind of a study. It doesn't diminish it, just realize it's strengths and weaknesses. Above that, in the analytic group, meaning the control group, are cohort studies. And gosh, if we could predict the future, we have some power. Well, we can't. But if we can take on understanding risk factors, looking for the outcome later, that's more powerful than trying to look back and try to remember 20, 30 years ago what the heck happened. No wonder case control studies are more prone to bias. And then if we go up the ladder and and understand that the randomization reduces selection bias and there's not any better way to do it, clinical trials have a distinct advantage. But every clinical trial is not the same statisticians, epidemiologists like big numbers. Well, why? Because it's usually related to less chance of bias. And so it's useful to think of clinical trials as what are called high alpha and beta, meaning a higher risk for making an error for the inclusion. Either way, finding something that isn't there or or not finding something we should have found, or there are low alpha and beta or low chance of that, and those are usually higher numbers, and because it takes money, time, and effort to do them, and the energies are put into, we pay good attention to large number of studies that are done really well. On the other hand, there's some downfalls for clinical trials. Oftentimes, inclusion and exclusion criteria make them not very generalizable. They actually are specific, most specific for the group of patients that are being seen and studied. And we all know that there's, <laughs> most patients we see may not fit into those categories. And because there are a number of studies out there, there is some advisability to combine studies together. And so there is power in understanding that. So a meta-analysis of well-done studies does go farther if it's done well and if the rules are followed. Unfortunately, there's a lot that's described as meta-analysis, garbage in, garbage out. But if you follow the rules, and now we have international guidelines to help us understand reporting with great checklists. And if we can understand that tool, we can improve our ability to find out the information that's thrown in front of us is actionable.
1: So that's the goal. Are you saying that there are international guidelines on how to appropriately do a randomized prospective trial? Is well, we talking? have
0: a lot, lot of advancements compared to years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, one is is most clinical trials need to be registered. If they're done well, they should follow international well accepted guidelines. You can look it up through a website called Equator, and you can click on each of the types of standards for reporting You can use that as a checklist to begin to find out if that study is is up to snuff so yeah we 're advancing our ways to begin to find out how transparent the reporting really is. On the other hand, we need to develop tools, and what we 're make comment about in the towards the end here is we 're trying to teach at the NLA how to develop those tools in order to begin to critically look at literature and find out if it fits the criteria that we
1: know is up to snow. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me to discuss evidence-based medicine and how to interpret it is Dr. Robert Wild, Professor of Reproductive Endocrinology, Obstetrics and Gynecology, Medicine and Biostatistics, and Epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Wild is also the Chief of the Gynecology Service at the VA Medical Center in Oklahoma City. So... Robert, as we've been talking about the kind of the details and the hierarchy of evidence, first of all, I got a, I brought a smile to my face that expert opinion is the lowest on hierarchy. <laughs> Unfortunately, the cost of that is usually free, and you get what you pay for. <laughs> uh, but uh, tell me a little bit about for our listeners, and we have a broad scope of listeners from lipid geeks to general practitioners to ob/gyns. We really have a pretty broad scope of listeners on ReachMD. What types of things would help them critically evaluate a trial? So if they hear about a study, whether it be in a lecture or on the radio or read it in the literature, what things should be the key things they look for to determine how to interpret the results?
0: Well, a couple of things. There's a, an acronym called PICO, the PICO question, which is pretty widely used in a lot of EBM sites. You might find it in Canada. You might find it in England. We prefer to use a slightly different acronym because we think it's broader. It's PCOS, and it stands for really understanding what the patient question is that that article is addressing. And usually you can find it in the objectives in the introduction, usually. If not, you better ask yourself, why? Because remember, the hardest part of this whole process is framing the right question. If we don't have the clinical question in our mind and we go try to find an answer, it may not be addressing what we're after. So finding that patient question is crucial and understanding going from general to specific, can this really answer what I'm after, is an important part of the entire process. So P stands for patient question, patient population. From the get-go, is it even related to what our question is or does it relate to our kind of patients? We, we need to know that. Then what we try to look at is exactly what's compared to what. It sounds easy. Sometimes articles aren't transparent. Sometimes they just don't reveal it. So you've got to dig in a little bit deeper. What's being compared to what? Maybe something compared to nothing. Well, that helps us with the hierarchy. We know kind of where we sit better. Sometimes it's tough to see what's compared to what. And then you can have hybrid studies that can complicate it. And then the O stands for outcome. And people confuse that often. We're not talking about what the result is. Our job is to find out if this whole thing is internally valid and then find out if it's externally valid or generalizable so we can use it. That's what we're after. But thinking about the outcome, we're interested in, is it the right outcome? Is it a valid outcome? Are there better outcomes? Exactly what outcome do they use to compare? That's important. So we can look through literature quickly, but we can look at the elements quickly and learn kind of quickly. if. We're talking about an internally valid approach to try to answer a problem. And S stands for study design. So knowing that hierarchy and sorting out the study design helps us integrate our clinical decisions depending on what the given problem is. So we practice actually in the course how to critique and try to go through some of the tools. And it requires some terminology. But the good news is there's some great websites available to pick up the tools. I think what we try to offer is a chance to practice that. And we explain to people that they're on a journey. If you're new to it, that's fine. If you're in the middle of it, you're accomplished in it, there's always an ability to learn because we're living in an age when not, can we answer that? It may be that it's too much information. Our question is, is what information is actionable that we can rely on that's really gonna improve our ability to take care of people and make clinical
1: choices? So tell us a little bit in the few minutes we have remaining about the course uh, that you're providing through the National Lipid Association. How would one enroll? Do you have to be a member of the NLA? And Are the courses going to be presented at NLA meetings, or what's the format?
0: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. We've had an opportunity to put it on in Austin, and then we've done it here in, in New York City. And don't have to be an NLA member. A lot of people find it helpful prior to the meeting because it helps them understand terminologies and integrate some of the findings better. And what we really focus on is why we think evidence-based practice is the way to go, try to illustrate what it is and what it isn't, talk about some of the things we addressed here, and importantly, go through kind of the language of the most important concepts. And then we organize that around a given case scenario, and we ask participants to read the article that we provided with the goal of trying to understand is this article valid? Is it usable? Is it specific enough to help us solve a problem? Then we go back to try to integrate how, after we've critiqued it, whether it's actionable and how we would integrate that with actually taking care of that clinical problem. Another big feature that we've been excited about is we have our reference librarian work with us. And going live, we try to teach how to access information and update people for different needs, about all the wonderful resources that are out there. It's amazing what's out there that actually is at our fingertips in our Internet age, and we feel like many of them are underutilized, and we should be using them to our advantage. We know that that common information is used by all kinds of our patients, our lawyer friends, but if we can sort through that and learn how to sort and sift what's better and quickly use it in a practical way... We've really made better clinical choices, so that's kind of the, the concept.
1: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Robert Wilde, Professor of Reproductive Endocrinology, Obstetrics and Gynecology, Medicine and Biostatistics, and Epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Wild's also the Chief of Gynecology Service at the VA Medical Center in Oklahoma City. Thank you very much, Robert, for your insights. And uh, it's a completely different program than we've done before. I found it fascinating. Thanks very much. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity. It's
0: been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.